Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, for those of you who have just joined us um, today here and online, I just want to welcome you. And uh, my name's Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint. Uh, today's actually a, an interesting day in a, in a history of our community at Crosspoint. I don't know if anyone's been paying attention, but uh, it has been one year today that we have actually been here in this space worshiping together as Crosspoint Church. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Um, and uh, it's uh, coming up pretty soon. I mean, it's been nine years. We're going to be having a 10-year church anniversary uh, celebration at some point. So um, pay attention and hold on to your hats for that. Uh, this is also my last opportunity to share with you and to speak to you uh, before I head off on my sabbatical. Uh, many of you don't know, uh, but m- probably most of you do. Yeah, uh, you're happy to see me go. That's good. Um, I'm going to be taking off for a few months to rest and restore and get prepped up for the fall. And uh, for what's next for us as a, as a faith community, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for, again, for giving me that opportunity and giving me that great gift. Um, today is a standalone message, so it's not part of a teaching series, and the topic of the message, if you haven't guessed already, is awe. And I want to begin today with just a simple premise as our starting point. It's simply this. Human beings are looking for awe. Let me say that again. Human beings are looking for awe. In fact, you are looking for awe. The person beside you is looking for awe. It's inescapable for every single one of us. It is unavoidable. Every day, in big ways and in small ways, we are all looking for awe. Now, what is awe? How do we define it? Well, I think most people find it easier to experience awe, and we don't find it so easy to describe awe. But let me make a small attempt this morning. Awe, some would say, is a very human response of reverence and respect that's kind of mixed together with fear and wonder. So it's this experience we have of transcendence where we marvel and we revel at something. Like I said, Not so easy to describe, more easy to experience for most of us. Uh, Yet, we're all looking for it. We're all looking for awe. This is perhaps why young men will climb tall skyscrapers and hang off of them by their fingertips with a camera attached to their head for all the world to see. It's why we stand for hours at concerts, singing to our, our, our favorite hits. It's why we eat at expensive restaurants and pay exorbitant amounts of money for small, small plates and send pictures to our friends. It's why we scream at playoff games. It's what makes us pause in the cool, crisp early morning and watch the sun creep over the horizon while the birds are just waking up. It's why we spend so many hours of every week scrolling through our Instagram and Facebook feeds. We are all searching for awe. And 
this isn't just true of Christians. I mean, it's, it's true of every person who's ever breathed. This search for awe, it transcends cultures, it transcends genders, ages, families, socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter who you are. Every single person on this planet is searching for awe. And this, this longing for awe, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You might be surprised to hear that we were actually created for it. That's how we were designed, how we were wired. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, he describes it as a God-shaped vacuum that's in every human soul. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says that God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we, who are the creation, were designed to experience a creator. And nothing can complete the deepest longings for awe except God himself. Now, as it turns out, God has created a pretty awesome world, right? He, and he actually, actually invites us to experience awe through his creation. It's all around us, really. If we're paying attention, if we just look for it, we will see awe in abundance. It's in the breathtaking view of the valley when you're somewhere above the tree line. It's in the creamy saltiness of melted butter on fresh baked bread as you sink your teeth into it and it drips down your face. It's close to lunch, isn't it? <laughs> it's with the explosion of thunder while we huddle under blankets during a summer storm. It's in the, the carpet of snow-white apple blossoms as they burst to life during springtime in your backyard. Awe is all around us, if you just will look for it. But every time we experience awe within creation, it's actually intended to point us somewhere. It's actually intended to point us to the one who actually created it. So every jaw-dropping, every knee-weakening, every silence-producing moment should cause us to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for all that you've created. Awe in creation is merely a signpost that turns our attention to the giver and to the maker of all things. Now today, I want us to look at a portion of scripture that is all about awe. And the text we're going to look at is Psalm chapter 8. I'm going to read through the entire text, invite you to follow along. If you've got sermon notes, you can pull those out. And then we're just going to walk through the psalm just a little bit at a time this morning as we think about awe. So Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I mean, you've made them a little lower than the angels and, and crowned them with glory and honor. And you made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
So let's start at the beginning. I mean, you probably noticed that this psalm begins and it ends in precisely the same way. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The, the writer's actually using a literary device. It's called an inclusio. So these two verses are like bookends, holding everything together. Or if you prefer, like the co- chocolate cookie wafers on the outside of an Oreo cookie, Okay. And they're really important, these bookends, because they tip us off to what the psalm is really all about. What is it about? It's about God's majesty. That word majestic, it means, it means excellent, beautiful, splendid. It's about God's glory resounding everywhere, in every nook and cranny, every square inch of our globe. In other words, it's an expression of awe. But then we start diving into the middle of the psalm because that's ultimately where it's pointing us towards, right? The Oreo cookie cream frosting, the white stuff, the space between the bookends. This is the part that begins to tell us why is it then? Why is God so majestic? So let's go there. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe of the avenger. Now, when I read that verse, I don't know about you, but I look at it and I go, this needs a little bit of an explanation, okay? Because it's not obvious what the writer is trying to say. So let me attempt it this morning. Here's what he's saying. Essentially, God has enemies. And God's enemies are pretty fearsome. And they have a lot to speak against God. But God is in no way intimidated by his enemies. In fact, God is so great that he can drown out their ugly cries with children's voices. You see, God doesn't need an army to defeat his enemies. He can win through the praise of children and infants, through the laughter of children at play, the sound of a baby's first cry from the womb, these delicious, smushy, gushy little kids and their voices. God can use those to defeat his enemies, right? And the the interesting thing is that if you read scripture, this is often how God works. This idea is taken up by the Apostle Paul. You read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God says, it says this. It says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is how majestic God is. That even through the voices of children, he can defeat his enemies. But there's more. Let's look at verse 3. It says, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. So here you can imagine the psalmist. He's looking up at the sky. It's the middle of the night, right? And he's taking everything in, in the sky with jaw-dropping wonder. And he's thinking to to himself, you know, this is, it blows my mind. That God, he created all of this, all of this with just his fingers, it's, it's almost like he's saying this work of God, this universe, it's, it's intimate. It's personal. It, he, God is like an artist or a craftsman, carefully fashioning all the celestial bodies. Every brush stroke, every contour, every part of it is a labor of love that God has created with his own bare hands. Now, keep in mind, I mean, the, the psalmist here has never studied astronomy in an elementary school, Right? He doesn't know that there's eight or perhaps nine planets in our solar system. He doesn't live in a world with space shuttles, lunar landings, or Hubble telescopes. He has a very limited scientific view of the universe. And of course, today, we have a 
broader understanding of the universe. But even with our advances in technology, in the, in the day in which we live, astronomers are still scratching their heads about things like black holes and dark matter and dark energy. And, and we're still trying to get our heads around, in our day and age, about how big and how enormous our universe is. So for example, if you were to point the Hubble telescope at any point of the sky, okay, and you were just to look at a part of the sky that's the size of a grain of sand. So the Hubble telescope found that grain of sand and zoomed in on it. It would see 10,000 galaxies just in that grain of sand. Every one of those galaxies would contain about 100 billion stars. Think about that. 10,000 galaxies, 100 billion stars, just in that tiny grain of sand. And we haven't, I mean, we haven't begun to talk about the planets that are in all of those galaxies. The visible universe, to the best of our knowledge, has 100 billion galaxies. 100 billion galaxies. And each one of those galaxies has approximately 100 billion stars. It means the universe contains 10,000 times a million times a million times a million stars, like our sun, okay? That's how big our universe is. And when you consider that God put this together with his fingers, when you really think about that, you suddenly begin to feel very, very small. And God becomes very, very large. The psalmist continues in verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Here at the center of the psalm is the jaw-dropping question. How can a God create a universe so vast and yet care for us so much? Let me ask you a question today. Do you know that you are on God's mind a lot? Are you aware that God cares about you a great deal? How much does God care for us? God cares for us enough to give his only son in exchange for our lives so that we could live rescued and restored lives in relationship with him. He cares for us that much. Who are we that God should care for us so much? This is the question of wonder. This is the moment of awe at the center of the psalm, right in the middle of the white stuff. So the writer continues. He continues in verses 5 to 8. He says, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. He's saying this is, this is how important human beings are to God. I mean, we're the, we're the pinnacle of his creation, okay? So we're just a step lower than all of the heavenly beings, and yet we are closer to God than anything else in all the creation. We matter more to God than the llamas and the lilies, the emus and the evergreens, because only people are created in the image of God. We, as human beings, we have the capacity to reflect, to dream, to imagine and to experience awe. 
And as God's image bearers, it says that, that he's actually placed the entire in creation under our stewardship. So, so we are caretakers of the planet. We're its creators, the builders, the culture makers. And God has given this huge responsibility and privilege to us as human beings. I mean, this is huge, like bigger than Donald Trump, huge. I mean, huge as human beings. God has given all of this to us. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And so, in the end, the psalmist concludes precisely where he began. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm about awe. And the psalmist is inviting us to participate in this awe. So let me ask you something this morning. When it comes to God, how is your sense of awe? See, I have discovered that if I'm not careful, my awe of God can diminish. Sometimes I lose my sense of the awe of God. Or sometimes my awe of God gets hijacked or dislocated. How about you? I mean, seriously, how about you this morning? How is your sense of awe about God? You know what? Because it can go away. Let, let, me, let me tell you why. Let me suggest this morning, from personal experience, from very personal experience, three ways that you can have your awe of God robbed from you. Three ways. The first robber is distraction. You know, every day in our, in our society, every day we are bombarded with torrents of distractions. Did you know that we're the most stimulated uh, generation that this world has ever seen? There's never been a generation on this planet that has been as stimulated by outside stimuli as we have. Flickering pixels, rush hour traffic, a myriad of Facebook invites that we never intend to respond to, okay? These stretch our attention in a thousand directions. The ancient Chinese had a practice that was known as Ling Chi, which can be translated as slow slicing or the lingering death. Or more fa famously, it's known as death by a thousand cuts. It was a form of torture. It was a form of execution. And they took tiny portions of the victim's body. They were removed piece by piece over an extended period of time. And I realize this is a graphic image. It's a horrid image. Why am I talking about this? I think yet many of us are having our awe whittled away, one small distraction at a time. And we surf and we scroll and we hustle. But let's be honest, how many times do we actually experience awe when our noses are in our phones? How often do we have a sense of awe when we're in rush hour traffic? Slice by slice, our imaginations are being dissected and our sense of wonder decapitated because we're distracted. We are a distracted people. Here's the second thing that can rob you of awe. Familiarity. Did you know that when God becomes too familiar to you, it can actually pickpocket your awe? And I realize to many of us, this seems kind of counterintuitive. I thought the more we know about God, the more we'll hold God in awe and respect. Well, sometimes you can look at something so often that you actually no longer see it. Artists call this visual lethargy. Psychologists call this habituation. 
So technically, it's a diminishing of your emotional response to a repeated stimulus. So you get so used to things that you actually no longer see them. You know, this happened to me. I just moved recently into my new neighborhood. And as I moved into the neighborhood, I mean, I noticed every house. I noticed every site. I noticed every single sound, right? I knew there was a dump truck parked on the corner. I saw the juniper bushes growing around the mailbox. I knew where that pothole was down at the end of the street. But after 50 drives to and from work, I no longer see these things anymore. I just want to go home and eat pot roast. I don't see this world anymore at all. Could it be, could it be that being too familiar with God could dull our excitement and numb our amazement? You know, this happens when we tend to reduce God to theological categories or well-worn phrases or popular platitudes. And the thing is, they might be true. Like, they're all very, very true of God. But they become so much rote that they no longer make you weep, and they no longer set your feet to dancing. We forget that God is so much more than we could ever imagine. That he is mysterious. That he is beyond comprehension. But we speak of him like we're reading the ingredients on a cereal box. We've become too familiar Hey, listen, this morning, if your God is too easy, or if you speak of God too casually, could it be that perhaps your God has become too familiar, and this has robbed you of your awe? Here's the third robber. The third thief is replacement. You know, we were, we were designed with a capacity for awe, there's, but the problem is there's a shadow side to this pursuit. And sometimes we replace our awe of God with awe of people or awe of things. So our awe of the creation, ultimately, it's supposed to be a pointer pointing us to God that leads us, when we look at it, to praise and to thanksgiving. But sometimes we replace God with other sources of awe so that these other sources become our ultimate source of awe. And the Bible teaches us about this. It talks about it. Actually, the whole story of Scripture tells about this effect. We, there's something broken inside of us. There's something inside of us that drives us to do this again and again and again. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. And here he, he's talking about how we can move away from God, and inevitably what we do is we move towards other things as our source of awe. Uh, Romans 1, 25, Paul says this. He says, they exchanged, he's talking about humanity, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So as a result of, of this thing that's inside of us, this brokenness is inside of us, we look for awe everywhere. We might look for it in, in material things. We might look for it in, um, in a career, in a relationship, in our families. We might look for it in a cause that we want to take up. We might look for awe in the church. Or we look for this ever-elusive search. We have this ever-elusive search to have like the perfect body. Or we might look for it in new experiences or in travel. Okay, we are looking for awe everywhere. The problem is, is that nothing in this life can truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Only God himself can fulfill your ultimate need for awe. And when you make something and you make someone else your ultimate source of awe, the Bible has a word for it. And the word is idolatry. So when you replace God as your ultimate source of meaning, your ultimate source of value, your ultimate source of worth, you've replaced God ultimately with an idol. 
And an idol doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? Oftentimes we think about idols and we can think about like certain addictions or, or broken practices or things in our lives. Listen, an idol can be a good thing that becomes a God thing and then at the end of the day becomes a bad thing. And so it's important for us to continually consider as followers of Jesus, have I replaced God as the ultimate source of my awe? Has something or someone else become an awe surrogate in your life? If you've lost your sense of awe, I think it's important to say, what's replacing my awe in my life? So, how do we get back our awe? How do we do that? Well, there's no clear set of strategies. There's no five steps to easy awe, okay? There's no simple way to do it. But I want to suggest some things for you this morning that I think might be helpful, and they've been helpful to me in my own personal life uh, as ways to maybe reclaim your awe. Uh, the first one I would suggest to you is, is a very Bible word, a very churchy word that uh, we're all very familiar with, and the word is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance means to turn around. It's a 180-degree turn away from what's killing us to what can give us life. And I think when we're considering our awe of God, we need to be honest with ourselves about replacements. The best thing you can do for yourself is to be honest and take an honest inventory of your life. And if you discover that there is something in your life that has replaced God, the first step you need to take is to accept that this thing can never actually satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. That it cannot bear the weight of your adoration and your praise. And the second thing to do is to cast down your idols. In other words, don't allow that replacement to sit in that place in your heart. To take it and say, no, I'm not going to be in awe of that. And to replace it again with God himself. Now, that doesn't mean you get rid of that thing. You might not actually be able to do it. I mean, for example, if your children are your source of awe and your sense of well-being and worth and value comes in parenting and being a super mom or super dad and it's in your children, you can't get rid of your children. Can I hear an amen on that? Okay, you can't get rid of your kids, right? You can't replace them. So you didn't hear that from me. But you can replace them in your heart. And you begin to say, what does that look like then as I begin to practice a new way? Um, moving forward. But sometimes it actually requires more extreme measures. Sometimes it may mean abandoning that certain thing in your life because you cannot get it off of your heart and you have to set it aside. Um, many of you know the story of, of Karen and I and in our relationship. Uh, Karen and I, before we got married, we had dated for um, uh, about a year and a half and uh, about a year, actually, we dated. And uh, I was a new Christian. I'd been a follower of Jesus for about a year. And I was just, I mean, I'd given up everything to follow Christ. I'd given up my aspirations of sports and college and all these sorts of things. And God said, go to Bible college. I went to Bible college. And I was dating this fantastic girl who was a follower of Jesus. And we had a great relationship together, and we prayed together, and we read the Bible together, and we worshiped together, and we did Jesus things together, okay? It was a great relationship. But as I was at Bible college, there was this growing sense more and more that something was more important in my life than God, that I had another source of awe in my life that was giving me more worth and value and meaning, and it was this girl that I was dating. And more and more, God impressed on my heart. You need to put me in the highest place. You need to put me in the highest place. 
until it came to a point that I knew that I couldn't, and I knew that the only way that I could ultimately do that would be to break things off with my girlfriend so that I could wholeheartedly follow after Jesus. And I did, and it was the most difficult thing I did in my life. And I cried, and I wept. And sadly, I did it the way that most Bible college students did it. I said, God is telling me to break up with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's the easy out. But it was true. It was true. And listen, the moment I made that decision in my life, there was a release in me. I was able to reclaim the awe of God in my life and to worship him more fully. Because I said I needed to set this apart. Now, God, by his grace, of course, we got back together and we got married and we made babies together and now everything's good, right? But at that time, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And in your life, I would wonder, is there something that you need to take drastic measures with because it is replacing the awe of God within you? So that's one thing. That we can do. The second thing I would suggest today is reflection. Reflection. There's actually a clue in the text if you look for it in verse 3. You notice what the, the psalmist says. He says, when I consider your heavens. When I consider your heavens. What's he doing? He's actually reflecting. He's considering. He's taking the time to ponder. If you are going to get your awe back, here's the thing. You need to create space in your life for your mind to be able to reflect. There's a pastor, author named Charles Stone. I like how he calls it. He calls it holy noticing. I like that. Intentionally pondering. Paying attention. It's the biblical version of mindfulness. The secular version of mindfulness is essentially navel gazing. But the biblical version of mindfulness is creation gazing. It's creator gazing. It's word gazing. See, in our world, reflection is not natural. So you have to set aside time for it. This might mean for you going for a walk in in nature. It might mean just sitting and thinking on a park bench. How weird does that look in our culture, sitting and thinking? It might mean meditating on God's word rather than rushing through it and checking off boxes. It might mean just observing the world around you. And in order to be able to do this, you have to kill the distractions. You have to put your phone down and give it a rest. Remove some apps from your phone. Stop binging on Netflix. Be rigorous and ruthless in your removal of distractions. And I know that's hard, right? It sounds like you're getting an appendage of your body cut off. But you have to do it if you're going to be able to practice reflection. To get your awe back, consider starting to reflect. Take up holy noticing in your life, because that's what the psalmist is doing here. The third thing I would suggest today is curiosity. Curiosity. Notice what the psalmist writes in verse 4. He asks the question, what is mankind that you are mindful, right? What's he doing there? What is that? Well, that's curiosity. He's asking a question. He's like, how is this possible? right? And it's a result of his reflection. Reflection leads to curiosity. And and one of the ways to grow your awe is to just start being curious again, to have a thirst to learn more, a longing to discover. And curiosity, ultimately, in the end of the day, it begins with humility. 
You can't advance to curiosity if you don't have humility. So you have to be willing to admit that you don't know everything. You have to get to this point where you don't have God in this neat and tiny box. That God actually can transcend your categories sometimes. You know, curious people, I find curious people never tend to lose their sense of awe. They're just interested in everything. They're open to new possibilities. They marvel at things. They ask lots of questions about life and and of other people. If you want to be curious, ask open-ended questions. Then pay attention and listen. I think the best open-ended question that we can ask is simply this. Why? Why? You know, think about little kids, right? Is they ask this question all the time. Why? Why? Why do they ask that question? Because they're curious. They want to know how the world works. They want to know why this is this and that is that. But as adults, we have this tendency. We grow up and we stop being curious and we stop, we, give, we set aside awe and we tell our children, stop asking why, right? And yet Jesus invites us to become like little children, to learn to become curious, to experience wonder and awe. And I think we need to learn to ask the question, why? So have you lost your sense of awe? Your awe of God. Let's be honest. Have you lost your sense of awe? Has something in your life robbed you of the awe of God? What is that? What's robbing you of your sense of awe? And what do you need to do to get it back? I'm going to invite the band uh, this morning as we close. So come on up, guys. And when they come, I'd, I'd like us to just do something that we um, maybe don't do too often here. I'd like us to read Scripture together in community. I'd like us to read Psalm 8 together this morning. Um, and if this seems a little strange to you, just keep in mind that we actually do this all the time. We just put music behind it. <laughs> we sing in community. Now we're just going to read in community. So Psalm 8, I invite you to read with me. Here we go. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's stand together and sing.
Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.